Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the bloatware that ships on those new PCs is way, way worse than you probably thought. Internet-connected printers and the thrilling story of an ATM skimmer. Yeah, really. It's actually extremely thrilling. We'll tell you all about it. Plus, your great questions, our answers, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to the TechSnap program. This is episode 270 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration program. We stream this episode live on June 2nd, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream? Why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check them out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello. Hello, everybody. Good Joining to have you from you. the past. Long time no see. Good to have you here, sir. It's been so <laughs> long. It. It's been so long. Ha ha, yeah, we kid. Like- 10 minutes or something. Yeah, we're recording a double episode, which is kind of a fun event because it means something's coming up. It means something's in the air. And right now, as we would normally be recording, Alan is over at that BSD can doing yes, his BSD things. great times. Yeah, we hope, I assume, likely. Yeah. Um, so, Alan, we have a, uh, sort of a follow-up story from something I teased in the roundup last week. Yep. And uh, it, to, to, for, for those who didn't catch it, don't remember, just really briefly, we talked about Lenovo shipping bloatware. And of course, it's not really unique to Lenovo either, where you ship a completely patched, up-to-date machine or close to it, but you end up shipping it with software that could have tons well, of vulnerabilities, in right? In particular, uh, it was their auto-updater for the bloatware was a problem. <laughs> it's just awful. It's just so, <laughs> it's the worst case ever. Uh, so between that and my awful headphones that I still have on because my ear hurts, I think we have a lot to get into. So uh, yep. should we start with uh, with that story? Yes. So it's a nice brand new computer you have there. Would be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> uh, so Duo Security, which is a company that does a lot of security research and stuff, uh, they've come up with a report. And according to a, the report published by the two-factor authentication company Duo Security, third-party updating tools included by default on your Dell, HP, Lenovo, Acer, or Asus uh, Windows PC, which are the top five Windows PC OEMs in the world, are exposing those devices to man-in-the-middle attacks. Hmm. So OEM PC vendors uh, understandably need a way to maintain the, and install more of the aforementioned bloatware that they give on your computer, right? So the Duo Labs uh, team investigated the OEM software update tools spanning the five biggest vendors, uh, Acer, Asus, Dell, HP, and Lenovo. So this study was restricted just to the auto-updaters included with the crapware. Not the rest of the crapware itself, which oh, can wow. have lots of security problems. Okay. This is only looking at the security problems in the auto-updaters <laughs> right? for the crapware okay. and the drivers and so on. Right. Every one of these OEMs now comes with, you know, this thing that's supposed to, oh, it's improve your experience and auto-update drivers and la- latest fixes for things. Uh, no. <laughs> so uh, implementing a robust, secure system for delivering software updates to users requires a thorough threat model and a fundamental understanding of how to correctly use uh, the various crypto systems available to do so. Many OEM vendors don't seem to understand or care about the need for basic security uh, measures in their software, resulting in software rife with vulnerabilities. Whether it's a creep in the coffee shop Wi-Fi 
or a nation state sitting on all the right trunks, any software that downloads and executes arbitrary binaries and uh, is an enticing target to attackers. This is well established from the fact that back in 2006, where some dude broke Mozilla's auto updater, or in 2010, when there was Evil Grade, uh, uh, or 2012, where the Flame Malware authors discovered how to do a man in the middle on Windows Update, <laughs> or even January of this year, where there was the Sparkle debacle on OS X. Uh, this shows that targeting the transmission of executable files on the wire was a no-brainer for the attackers. So the big problem here is the software updaters go and call Lenovo and say, is there an update? But they don't do HTTPS. So anyone could pretend to be Lenovo uh, by intercepting your Wi-Fi or wired connection and, you know, basically send you an update that is actually malware instead. You know, Alan, it's just here in the, in the, in the report, too, that they even, they even tested signature PCs, which are supposed to be those PCs that are like, crap free from Microsoft directly, but even those had OEM supplied software updaters and support packages that had flaws. Yeah. So even if you pay extra for the Windows computer that doesn't come with crapware, the crapware auto updater is still there and still affects your security. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like you feel bad for these consumers that there's just no reasonable expectation that they'd be aware of all of this. And so yeah. they're just suckered into a machine that comes loaded with and you know here the worst part, Alan? Not just stuff is software that enables man in the middle attacks and, and things like that, but just software that slows down the computer to begin with. It's mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. so much salt in the wound at this point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I said, the scope of the research paper is limited to the OEM updaters uh, and not the rest of the attack surface found on these systems. Um, you know, basic reverse engineering uncovered flaws that affected every single vendor that they reviewed, often with a very low barrier to entry to both discovery and exploitation. Oof. So they didn't have to look very hard to find problems, and they didn't have to try very hard to exploit them. Uh, so on Dell's, they found one high-risk vulnerability involving a lack of certificate best practices uh, that they've nicknamed a completely separate vulnerability, E-Dell root. Hmm. So Dell basically gets in there and starts trusting a bunch of its own certificates that are, uh, I guess, distributed improperly and could allow anybody to have uh, make their own certificate that would be trusted by this that's auto-installed on every Dell. So that's bad. Uh, for Hewlett-Packard, they say the two high-risk vulnerabilities that could be uh, could have resulted in arbitrary code execution on affected systems. In addition, five medium- to low-risk vulnerabilities were also identified. For ASUS, they found uh, one high-risk vulnerability that allowed arbitrary code execution, as well as one medium-severity local privilege escalation. On the Acer, they had two high-risk vulnerabilities that allowed uh, arbitrary code execution, and Lenovo had one high-risk vulnerability that allowed arbitrary code execution. Hmm. So they say, uh, in general findings, I had every vendor shipped with a pre-installed updater that was uh, at least one vulnerability resulting in arbitrary code execution as the system account, which is the even higher privileges than administrator, allowing for a complete compromise of the effective machine. So every new machine came with crapware and an auto-updater for the crapware. The auto-updater made the machine less secure, not more secure, as you would expect. The whole point of the updater is to patch the software, right? Uh, Not to mention that this report didn't actually look at the crapware itself, which is probably also full of problems. Uh, They also talk about here, too, like a lot of of these do silent updates. Not all of them, but enough of them do. Some of them, what they use, ridiculous obfuscation and pointless encryption features where they hide themselves in the registry. Yep. It's it's Uh, malware. Yeah. Uh, There's very low level of technical sophistication required to exploit this. It was trivial to to get in there. 
Uh, so they didn't have to work very hard. Like I think one of these runs a local HTTP server that anybody can connect to and have it do stuff on your behalf. And that's, I think, what the privilege escalation was. I think was. that was the Acer one. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, oh, here, let me just connect you and, and tell you what to do, and you'll just start doing it because yeah. yeah. security is silly. Uh, so, uh, vendors often fail to make even basic use of TLS, uh, let alone properly validating update integrity or verifying the authenticity of the updated manifest contents. So yeah, on top of if you use TLS properly so that you can verify the server you're talking to is actually a Novo and not a nation state or the creepy guy at the coffee shop pretending to be Lenovo, you still need to either have the actual updates be signed and so you can be sure that you know someone hasn't hacked Lenovo and replaced the update with something else or something, or at least have uh, verification on the manifest. So you know you have a file that's a list of all the files you're going to download or whatever, and at least sign that so you know that this file is should be this size and you know is actually from Lenovo. You know, so you talk about the trivialness of some of this. I guess what strikes me about this is two things. First of all, it's not shocking, I think, to any of us that there's this many problems. But I guess what is shocking to me is that we haven't really properly done this study before. How is it 2016 and we're just now getting around to this? And, and, and why is it okay that companies that are technology companies, that's, this is what they do is computers software and hardware and they're screwing this up well i think in particular part of the problem is that you know dell and lenovo are not software companies well and very they, much so right yeah well, then they shouldn't so be doing this though right of, <laughs> so they get a couple of people that aren't experts at it and they're supposed to set up the secure updating system but i think the biggest problem is these companies never cared about security before and maybe more stories like this will get them to actually clean up their act yes i just i uh of course, it gets even worse, right? So, uh, vendors sometimes had multiple software updated for different purposes and different implementations, uh, some more secure than others. So even if they if Lenovo fixed their updater, they actually installed three updaters. <laughs> I like the Asus Giftbox desktop. The Asus Giftbox desktop introduces you to valuable pre-installed apps and exclusive promotions. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's the other thing is that, you know, this is how they make their money is yes. uh, these trials that get you to buy software and stuff. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> multiple auto-updaters for all the crap nobody wants on their computer in any way. But is it? The large attack surface uh, presented by ancillary OEM software components makes updater-specific bugs easier to exploit in practice provi by providing the missing pieces of the puzzle uh, through other tools bundled with the system. So even if the auto-updater wasn't buggy enough to let me take over the computer entirely, the crapware included with it provides the rest of the pieces I might need in order to take over the machine. Everybody falls down. HP, yep. Lenovo, Asus, Acer, everybody. Yeah. The top five manufacturers. So if you go to the store and buy a computer, it's probably exploitable out of the box. Which means that the PC Windows ecosystem is, is, a security, is more of a security nightmare than we even realized. Yeah. Um, you know, I think part of the reason we haven't seen more on this before is that computer expert people often first thing they do after a new computer is reformat it. Although with the way Windows distribution and licensing model has changed, you don't really get your own install disk to do it. Like you get a recovery image that includes all the crapware. So yeah, it's a lot harder to actually yeah, get a clean these days. So. I mean, you know, I think a lot of geeks would probably just 
buy a copy of Windows directly if they wanted to be legit and do a fresh install. I mean, well, then you just pay for two copies of Windows. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's, oh, that's a crappy licensing model there, isn't it? But uh, not so crappy if you're Microsoft. <laughs> Dell, HP, and Lenovo. I just expected more from. I really did. Uh, I mean, they yeah. work so much in enterprise that it feels like they, out of all of these companies, should have. Well, actually, I think it was Asus I expected more from. They have much more of a brand of being the you know PC enthusiast tuner type people. Sure. Like I understand Dell loading their machines with crapware. Yeah, I guess uh, so. But even just basic things like uh, file signature checks, TLS. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not that hard to use HTTPS to, you know. Download your updates. I mean, we're, we're talking about this is super basic stuff they're not even doing. Yep. And then they're even going out of their way to make it harder. Fascinating story, Alan. Thank you for sharing that with us. Mm-hmm. That's woof, woo-hoo, that's a great out of the box, uh, out of the box. And uh, ours has some additional coverage as well as uh, uh, who else is it? Threat Post has some additional coverage, which Alan has linked in the show notes if you guys want to read up on that or share the story with friends, family, or companies. Because if you're a business and you buy a PC right now that is coming with some amount of bloatware, bloatware or I know, you know I've gotten HP Enterprise and Dell Enterprise machines that absolutely come with updaters for drivers and whatnot. Yep. They might not come with all of the extra software installed, but they still come with their, with their software to do that. Yep. Ooh. You know, Alan, that's why one of the many reasons why buying from companies like iX Systems is a great choice. iXSystems.com slash techsnap. These rigs are amazing, starting from your small business all the way up to crazy enterprise deployments powered by these Intel processors. I, will, I, I, I don't want to call them monsters because they're not scary, but they're, like, huge. I mean, these from, from the free NAS all the way up, I have seen some seriously impressive rigs. Uh, so go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap right there. Full stop. Go learn more about them. This is a hardware company that's been around for a while. They've survived the dot-com boom and bust, and then they decided to build a long-term sustainable company. They've just got a bench full of staff members that you want on your side. Uh, And maybe that's how they come up with crazy ideas. Like this one you sent me some pictures of, Alan. Is it Cavium? Is that how you pronounce this thing? Yep. Uh, So Cavium is a company that makes these ARM uh, 64-bit based um, computers, uh, new ones. Basically, they invented some new hardware, and the very first machine uh, being sold is for the FreeBSD Foundation to continue developing FreeBSD on it because it's uh, one of the premier platforms for this new uh, line of hardware. Huh. And so, IX is building the very first server for it for the FreeBSD Foundation. What uh, what makes what makes this guy stand out? What's that? What makes it cool as an ARM server? Uh, well, in particular, it's the um, it's the most cores that have ever been put in ARM before. So if you uh, get to one of the shots of the inside, you'll see that it only has one CPU in it, but that CPU is 48 cores at 2.5 gigahertz apiece. No. Yep. Uh, and right there? Uh, yep. And then you can see it's uh, there's a fan shroud to keep it cool, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Uh, and so on. But uh, yeah, it's got 128 gigs of RAM and four two terabyte hard drives. But if you look at the back there, you see there's a, a add-in card that's providing two one gigabit network connections but built in you see there's uh two 10 gigabit uh yeah. optical modules yeah i do see that and then beside that this wider one yeah that's a 40 gigabit qsfp plus uh networking module yes please so this machine has two one gig two 10 gig and a 40 gig connection man uh, and it has built-in ipmi as well i'm interested to see what their ipmi looks like because Normally that's x86, but I guess the IPMI is a separate chip on another OS, so it's probably the same. This is similar setup. This is ARM in the data center in a big way. Wow, yeah. redundant uh, power, super nice cooling. 
mm-hmm. one year. And there's uh, quite a bit of interesting acceleration stuff. It has you know built-in uh, accelerators for storage, security, virtualization, network packet processing, etc. And this is why the FreeBSD project and the FreeBSD Foundation are working so hard to make sure that FreeBSD is definitely tier one support for this uh, when it comes out. And uh, this is the first shipping piece of hardware for it. Pretty cool. Check them out at ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Also, pay a visit to their blog. Lots of interesting posts mm-hmm. there. I think that's a great resource for them. And yep. when you're on that ixsystems.com slash techsnap landing page, which is where you go to support this show, do check out that white paper. might just help make the decision a little bit easier for you. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Seriously cool hardware. Seriously cool. And I love hearing from people, too, that you know, pick up themselves a free NAS mini. If anybody got the new free NAS XL... Let me drool over it. Tweet me a picture of it at Chris L-A-S. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Thanks to IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So lately when people say, hey, Chris, I want to roll my own email server, I say, mm, you hear how that went for Hillary Clinton. But you know what people don't ask me about, Alan? Putting an internet printer on the web. Like, I don't, nobody does that. Nobody, <laughs> nobody is printing over the internet. I swear. Like, Google's got a print solution. Some people are using that. But, like, putting up, like, cups or IPP up on the web, nobody's really doing that, right? Nobody. Uh, I suppose. Yeah, you have to remember, <laughs> this is years ago now, right? I guess so. So maybe a few years ago. Yeah. I'm really just teasing because it's just kind of unbelievable, this story, really. It's, I find it to be kind of funny. Uh, it's from Krebs on Security. Did the Clinton email server have an internet based printer? Might have. So the Associated Press today points to the remarkable footnotes in a recent uh, State Department Inspector General's report on the Hillary Clinton email scandal, Mm -hmm. saying the email was managed from the vanity domain clintonemail.com. But there's a potentially more explosive finding. A review of the historic DNS records uh, for that domain indicate that uh, whoever built the private email server for the Clintons also may have done the not-so-bright idea of connecting an internet-based printer so according to, the, uh, according to the historic internet address map uh, s- stored by the uh, San Mateo, California company Farsight Security, among a handful of internet addresses historically assigned to the domain, uh, which came from Optiv- Optus, it's a cable ISP in New York, um, one of the IPs, uh, it seems that the Clintons basically had a small range of static IP addresses, mm-hmm. one that hosted the website and so on, uh, but one of them, uh, 24187 234188 uh, had the DNS set to printer.clintonemail.com. Hmm. Which suggested it was for a printer. Now, why would you have a static internet IP address dedicated to a printer? That seems kind of weird just in itself, uh, even if it was only, especially if it was only for printing on the LAN. Uh, so, yeah, that's very weird. Uh, and, you know, um, Krebs says, I should emphasize here that it's unclear whether an internet capable printer was ever connected to the printer.clinton.com address. Uh, nevertheless, it appears something uh, set up to work that way could have been there. Uh, more importantly, any emails or other documents that the Clintons decided to print uh, could have been sent out over the internet, even briefly, before going back to the printer, depending how the router is configured and so on. Uh, like, so he doesn't. If, sus- if they had public IP addresses, yeah, of one for your router and one for your printer, then your router wouldn't necessarily know the other one was there. So it would actually send it over the broadcast domain of your subnet, like so other people in the neighborhood possibly could have seen the packets. So what am I not understanding? Why is the assumption not that they were using it to print remotely? This seems like something uh, politicians would well, print it out for me. Because it's um, because it was years ago. You can't tell if the if it actually a printer was there, internet accessible. Sure. Sure, it just seems like if you're going to open that up. It's entirely possible. 
That, and that, it seems maybe, like you could see. Maybe it could have been firewalled or something. It's hard to say. It seems like you could see somebody at the executive level going, oh, I don't want to read that. Could you just send it to my printer? Yeah. I can see that. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, it, um, it can depend on the setup, but it is possible that somebody else in the same uh, network segment running a promiscuous mode or whatever could have actually seen the documents as they went by. Pretty unlikely that someone would do that or that it would have ended up working that way, but it's entirely possible. It definitely is not a good setup or best yes, practice. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, nothing, <laughs> um, not just because any idiot on the internet can waste all your toner uh, <laughs> by just sending stuff to your printer. Uh, so obviously you want to have some authentication or something. Or if they had the internet printer, if the printer was internet accessible, I'm sure it wouldn't have been for very long because they would have just got spammed to death. Right, right? yes. Uh, some of these printers have uh, simple vulnerabilities in them, though. Mm -hmm. So even if it was locked down, the problem is that if it's internet accessible, I might be able to hack the web interface or something on the printer. And then uh, once I've done that, I could then have an IP address that was maybe inside the trusted part of the network and then hop an island hop, right? That's it's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, and you remember uh, we talked about before where uh, this company got infected with a virus by like the Chinese and they like erased all their computers and then got reinfected again because a copy of the virus was hiding in their thermometers or something, like their uh, computerized environmental control system. And I think there was another one where they hit it in the printer. You know how you can install like Doom on the on the little built-in Linux that's in some yes, of the printers? Yes, Well, you could also hide a virus there and reinfect the machines after you erase them all. So the same thing could have happened there. Hmm. Um, Although it is also, uh, from the DNS records, it looks like the Clintons had an SSL VPN set up as yeah, well. Yeah, I was going to say that, yeah. Um, so it's like, you, that's a good sign that they were actually doing things a little more properly. Uh, but I would have expected the printer to be, you know, inside the land and only accessible if you VPNed in or something. But like you said, it's entirely possible that, you know, the Clintons wanted to be able to print emails from their cell phone, uh, no matter where they were, kind of a thing. Uh, if you actually dig into the Krebs article, apparently the... Uh, Department of State's policy for retaining emails and so on is that you have to print every email you receive and every email you send. Right. And then they put them in boxes. Yes. Which is why they can't search them worth a damn. Which might have been why she needed an internet accessible printer since she had her yes. own personal email account. Yeah. And they just had to print everything. But well, if it's a work, it doesn't explain it. connecting it to the internet. I don't know. Well, except for she traveled a lot. Well, it just seems like you would print, you would set up the printing to happen automatically on the server side and not from your cell phone in that case. Yeah, unless it's hard to say. Yeah. It was all so long ago that you know the setup doesn't exist in the same form anymore, so it's pretty hard to prove anything. And the chat room is saying that uh, even though the, even though they're trying to uh, uh, do a deposition of the IT staff, it, it looks like according to Politico, the staff will be uh, pleading uh, the fifth. So we probably won't get the information. So there you go. People are really talking about this one a lot. There's a lot going on there. Uh, it looks like there might have been a VPN that uh, they would use to connect back. So maybe they would. Uh, yeah, you'd think if they're going to use that, they would use that for printing. Very strange. Very strange. Uh, any other thoughts? Uh, no, I think that's it for that one. All righty. Well, how about instead of setting up an IPP printer behind your firewall, you just go spin up a droplet, right? Let's just go spin up a droplet. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. Just go spin up a droplet. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to get your own rig going in, like, no time. In less than 55 seconds... And only $5 a month. That's the starting price. You get 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And full stop right there. If you use our promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. I always say two months for free, but realistically, if you don't need to run the droplet 24-7, you can stop and start it. We do yeah, that with like, our droplets. 
Yeah, so uh, JB has a droplet that repeats the live stream uh, mm-hmm. to YouTube or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, that means that, you know, it's only live when the show's live and you turn it off when you're done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're only paying, was it like 0.4 cents an hour or whatever, $10 lasts a long time. Yeah, yeah, it, it's really cool. Uh, and it's a great way to do testing, too. Uh, it's my solution now instead of bothering with like a local virtualized uh, environment when I want to do testing is well, just so much straightforward to do a droplet. Your local environment takes more than 55 seconds yeah. to set up. Yeah. <laughs> and they've got data centers all over the world in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany, now in India, which is awesome. Yep. Singapore, everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yep. And uh, they have a great interface. Really, really nice. It's very straightforward, but also... Doesn't hold you back if you know what you're doing. Like, I love the HTML5 console. I love that you can set up SSH keys. You can deploy them to multiple machines at the same time. You can set up DNS and management there. They have private networking snapshot backups, a great API. And they, for I think, probably just a little bit longer, still have a sign-up going if you want to get on that new block storage, which I'm hopeful mm-hmm. about this. I think this could be really awesome. I signed it, up. It definitely solves the problem of you were having before. It's like, well, you know, the... Uh, X amount of storage on SSDs is great, but mm-hmm. I, I need, like, bulk storage. Yep. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what they do with that, and you guys can get on that over at DigitalOcean, too. So use our promo code SNAPOcean, get the $10 credit, and go build something, DigitalOcean.com. Thanks, guys. Thanks for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Alan, let's shift gears, and let's talk about a pretty popular topic. I was talking to Noah about this while we were driving around recently, and he's been digging into it just out of his own personal fascination with all of the different tricks and different methodologies people have mm-hmm. for setting up and hooking up skimmers, for for stealing from ATMs, and this article looks like a pretty good one, so tell yeah. me what it's about. So basically, this is uh, someone who follows Brian Krebs's blog and kind of works in the industry, uh, and he kind of, at the top, kind of reiterates a bunch of uh, Krebs's stuff, right? And he said, you know, Krebs has the, you know, the most popular articles on it and has the best information. Yeah, he's done and great he's work. produced numerous articles on ATM skinning, and he's essentially the go-to journalist for anything to do with ATM fraud. From reading his stuff, the author of the post had learned uh, how the bad guys think when it comes to ATM fraud. In general, they want your card number and your PIN number so that they can program their own card and... And uh, use your card. Uh, To get your card number, the thieves have a few options. Traditionally, they affix a device to the ATM card reader that skims your card as you put it in. Uh, Usually, these used to have to go on, like, they would fit over top of the card reader. And so suddenly, there would be some things sticking out, and it would look kind of obvious. All of a sudden, now banks started putting these really weird-shaped things on them so that it wouldn't be easy to fit something on there. And it's like translucent plastic, so it glows, and so you can see that there's nothing else inside or whatever. Um, but they have these new ones that are razor thin and actually go in the slot uh, <laughs> such that your card still fits in the slot. Nice. And so you can't even see them. Although there's this other technique, especially with the more uh, third-party-ish ATMs like you find in convenience stores and stuff, uh, where they actually hijack the network link and sniff the traffic as it goes back and forth and steal oh. the numbers that way. Oh, yeah. I've, yeah I, most I have... good ATMs will be using SSL and so on, but some of them... I have been seeing a ton of ATMs recently. Like somebody's going around and selling a bunch of these. They're, they they come up to about my chest. They're little units. Uh, they have a touch screen and then they have a little cellular uh, like um, a Yagi antenna just sitting mm-hmm. on the top of it. And that's it. That's their connectivity. Yeah. It has like some sort of MiFi in there. But they're all running the same common software. And you know that if somebody figured out one vulnerability, all of those ATMs yep. would be hacked. Yeah. Uh, so most of the attacks on the ATMs are physical, but there are software attacks and network attacks as well. Yeah, I mean, the physical uh, ones are sort of the go-to, it seems like, though. 
But yeah, they say the devices that the bad guys use must look as close to the actual reader as possible so they don't arouse suspicions. Uh, black hats go to great lengths to achieve this. Sometimes uh, they will replace entire panels in the ATM. Uh, and they may even go so far as to insert a tiny card reader inside the card slot uh, or, you know, stealing data on the wire with so-called network skimming. Or see, here's an overlay that uh, records your pin and it looks exactly like the real one. Yeah, it just sits right and down it just on sits top right it. over top of it. <laughs> sneaky, sneaky. You wouldn't yeah. even really notice. You might feel yep. a little funky, maybe. Yep. But I but would just think it's a cheap ATM. If it's an ATM you use like every week, you might notice a small change like yeah, that. Yeah, otherwise I'm just thinking it's cheap uh, construction. But otherwise, yeah, you walk up to it, you're like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, the funny one was uh, some bank had a fire, and so they had a, a van parked out in front of the bank with like ATMs built into it. And it's like, is that from the bank? Or did somebody get really smart and build a van with ATMs hanging out the side <laughs> that just steals your information? <laughs> right. Oh, that is really weird. I don't know, Alan. That is, that is a strange one. Yeah, so, and if you look just below that, there's a little video. Yeah. Uh, and this shows how easy it is to install one of these card skimmers. So the guy walks just, up. Did yeah, he just so do it? No. No, uh, okay. So you see the guy behind uh, him with the hat? Yeah. Yeah. So the, this guy's like, you know, hi, talking to the person at the counter and kind of distracting them. And as soon as he's like, oh, I want something from the shelf behind you, right? So the lady turns around to get something off the shelf and blammo. Card skimmer. Wow. That's it. That's it. He even had time to double check it to make sure it was on there good. Yep. Did you see that? He even double checked yep. it. Wow, let's watch yep. that again. That was really something. Mm -hmm. So, oh wow, he's already done it. So I go back here. It, you okay. can't even tell. It, it just it just pops right yep. over. Yep. And Bam. Blammo. Nobody would notice it's like, that. Oh, it's not quite on. It's, it's a little crooked. Click. <laughs> wow. Who would notice that? Exactly. Um, so he didn't, he then, didn't even need to have a second person there. That guy could yeah. have done it. So uh, Krebs has a bunch of advice, like, you know, jiggling parts of the ATM and make sure they're, like, solidly connected, not just kind of stuck on with glue or something, uh, and so on. And so this guy uh, was in on vacation in Indonesia, and uh, he encountered, uh, they have these little ATMs in kind of cubicles so that you can't be seen from the street to make it safer for tourists, and they're air-conditioned and so on. But they walk up to this thing, and the the little guard that, sh you know, to, uh, so someone beside you can't see your pin being typed is, like, loose when he jiggled on it. And it came right off. And he was like, her? And so at a quick glance, he suspected the skimmer immediately. And when he looked at it, it's got a tiny switch, some port for some kind of cable, and a faint blue light coming out from inside. <laughs> oh. Yeah, he's like, I wasn't sure what to do. I was tempted to leave it alone since it wasn't mine and couldn't possibly be a legitimate piece of the ATM. But if it were a skimmer, I would be knowingly allowing more people to get ripped off. I couldn't allow that to happen. Plus, I wanted to take it home and see how it worked. Exactly. So he took it with him. So he said, we decided to take it. Uh, on our way out to dinner, Elizabeth and I discussed excitedly about how cool it is to be in the middle of a criminal conspiracy. <laughs> it feels like we're in a movie, she awesome. said. We talked about how uh, we think the crooks were getting the data. We talked about how we would report it to the authorities and take it apart. Uh, the movie kept getting more and more exciting in our imaginations. Then we got to the part of the movie where a group of men on motorcycles track us to our home and shoot us up with automatic weapons. Oh, not cool. Not yeah. cool. <laughs> By the time we got to the restaurant, we were pretty scared. <laughs> a GSM-enabled device uh, could feasibly phone home with its GPS coordinates. So just in case, we asked for some aluminum foil from the restaurant. Amazing. And made a makeshift Fair Day case. No. 
<laughs> when it comes to Indonesian criminal gangs, you can never be too careful. Hmm. Uh, so the next day, we were still alive and not shot at by gangs of criminals. So uh, we called the bank to report the device we found on their ATM. The customer service representative was pretty confused, and he took my number, uh, name and number and dispatched a technician to look at the machine. Uh, you know, that reaction, you know, the CSR people being very confused when you're reporting a problem like this is starting to be troubling. If you remember the story from, oh, it'd be a year or more ago, where the students noticed something odd with the, uh, the ATM at a grocery store and they called the bank about it and the bank was like, oh no, our network is secure or whatever. Yeah. Until they made it start spitting out 20s or whatever. Yes, yes. Eventually they got the manager of the bank <laughs> to give them a note to explain why they were late for school and like a scholarship or something. Yeah. But yeah, oftentimes you have a hard time convincing the bank. Uh, what was it? One time Krebs called the bank and they wouldn't believe he was Krebs. <laughs> so like, we know who Krebs is. You're not Krebs. It's like, yes, I am. It's like, I'll put up a blog post. I am actually Krebs. Answer my damn phone call. <laughs> I will tweet anyway. that it is me. I promise. It is yeah. me. So if you, if you look at the one where he's uh, wiring up the cable there. Um, <clears throat> so after some deduction, they figured out that that is actually a USB port. Uh-huh. Uh, so he, he sacrificed one of his USB charging cables, which is not something you want to do when you're on vacation, to start cutting up your USB charging wow, cables. Wow, yeah, that is, yeah. Yeah, so he cut up it and stripped it down, and after about 40 minutes, managed to get the 40, uh, the four wires, you know, that are like this braided, easily, not easy to get, into these pinholes, right? And so after 40 minutes, he got it all lined and, and so on, and he plugged it into his computer. And he crossed his fingers... And the skimmer mounts as an external hard drive. Awesome. Yeah. So it mounts. He's like, uh, I freaked out a little and began copying files from the device. There were two folders, one called Google Drive and one called Video. The Google Drive folder was empty, but the video one had 11 gigabytes of video files in it. Whoa. 45 minutes later, the files are still copying. The whole time I had to hold the cable and not move, otherwise I might interrupt the transfer. <laughs> So after it was finally done, I shake out the cramps in my hand and go over the footage. The camera records 30 minutes chunks of video whenever it detects movement. Most of the videos are of people typing in their PIN numbers upside down. And so you can see here. Yeah, he, he posted one where somebody is entering their PIN, although there's not much happening at the moment because I think yeah. movement. Oh, there it goes. And there's someone hands comes in and presses some That's buttons. hard to actually read, though. But yeah. you can see the person pressing the buttons. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. And then he noticed the device records sound as well. He said, at first I thought that was waste of storage to record sound. But after looking at the footage, I realized how helpful the sound is. The beeps correspond to actual key presses. So you can't fool the skimmer by pretending to touch multiple keys. Also, the sound of money dispensing means that that pin is obviously valid. Oh, sure. You can also tell when people type out their pin and have to type it over again or something. Hmm. So actually, it turns out having sound is interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, then when they actually tore apart the device, which because it was hidden in you know a rubber thing that meant to look like the the shroud you stick your hand in to hide what you're typing, uh, when they tore the device apart, they found a cell phone battery, a controller board, and a pinhole camera. So they have some diagrams and pictures of that as well. Look at this. So there's thing. the rubber thing, and you see inside it's got a little pinhole camera and some wires. But if you scroll down a little bit more. Wow! Look where they've 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 placed the cam the the camera, and then yeah. down here where it's thicker, they've integrated battery. Yeah, and you see, there's a Samsung cell phone battery connected to this little controller board and the spy camera. It looks like they've actually taken apart a cell phone from Samsung and put it in this thing almost. Well, I think they just bought the batteries because but the look other at that boards right there. 
Oh, oh, okay. Okay, okay. I see. Uh, Googling the number from the controller board revealed that it's a commercially available board used in many spy cameras. Uh Uh, The board was modified to include an external on-off switch and the stronger Samsung battery and the aforementioned USB connection. And you see it's got a little SD card, 32 gigs. Amazing. Uh, Yeah, the overall design choice for the skimmer was actually pretty decent. As mentioned, uh, at first I thought recording sound was a waste, but I found that it was actually quite useful in decoding pin numbers as they were typed. Because you can actually tell, you know, exactly when they pressed the button and match that up easier. Because like you saw, it was pretty hard to tell what buttons they were pressing at first. Um, yeah, and you can, you, you can just imagine that this technology is going to get way mm-hmm. better. The cameras are going to be better. The, connect, the connectivity and need for local storage will be yeah. reduced because if you could have this thing uploading in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, well, you imagine 11 gigabytes in a couple of days, you probably wouldn't want to be doing that over your 4G connection. Though. Yeah, that, but, you know. Yeah, if, you're stealing, if you're stealing enough credit card numbers and, sure. and PIN numbers and so on, you're probably making enough money. It would probably be still profitable. Or imagine uh, five, ten years from now when yep. the cameras are 4K at that size, right? Yep. And they work I better is, in low yep. light. He says, I also initially thought the cell phone battery was a lazy choice, uh, maybe it was just what they had laying around, but I came to believe, however, that it's actually the best choice for long-lasting, small-profile uh, power source like that. Mm-hmm. You know, what else are you going to use? A bunch of double A's. Right, and it's not like they aren't putting a ton of R&D into batteries that size. They've got to exactly. be pretty good. Uh, so the researchers didn't actually find the actual card skimmer, and actually he suspected, based on the wiring and so on, that it might have actually been a network-level skimmer. Just uh, still needed the pin, that, that ATM maybe wasn't using SSL, which would be terrible, but... Yeah. But yeah, uh, he figured out... Uh, the interesting thing, an update. Yeah. So the bank never called him back, but he went back to the same ATM a couple days later, and there was a brand new skimmer installed. It looks like a mass-produced product. Uh, well, he said it actually looks like they're handmade in small oh, really? numbers. Look at this, though. I mean, look at that, though. From from where you're standing here, that genuinely looks like, like a, the real one. Yeah. Now, they, they could have done that by actually stealing a real one and then... Oh. Like you go and cut the real one off sure. an ATM somewhere, and then you build your device into it, and then put it back. I mean, if I walked up to that, I would, I would, I would never, I would not doubt that at all. I'm yeah. going to jiggle them from and now that, on. Yeah, exactly. That's why Krebs says you got to jiggle the bits and make sure there's nothing else in there. <laughs> jiggle the handle. What do I always say? Jiggle the handle. Wow. Now, see, instead of big foam rubber thing like that, it might be like they're very thin, hard plastic, probably to make them harder to do that too. Hmm. They're just going to keep updating this stuff, too, you know? Yep. It's just just the beginning. You know, the banks fight back by doing things like, you know, big things that stick out uh, from the card slot to make it harder to put a skimmer over top, and the bad guys adapted by making skimmers that go inside. Well, and legitimately, the targets, the soft targets, are these these stores out in the middle of nowhere that have these ATMs yep. or that just, are... Especially this one, there's like a bunch of ATMs in an alley in a tourist district. But it's like every gas station in Washington... Now, not really, not, but I mean, all over the place has the same ATM. It's a, it's a well, third party ATM. Those ones, because often what those ones do is you ask it for $20 and it takes $22 out of your account and the store gets, yes. you know, one of the $2. Yes. They almost all of them have, some of them have a, almost all of them have a $2.95 transaction fee. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Some of them are three. Yeah. So, you, but my point is which, there's so which, many of them that you could yeah. make a mouse, you could make a, you could make a part like this and you could put on a bunch of them. I guess it's a little different in Canada because there's only like five major banks here. You, and because your bank charges you a fee if you use a different bank's like out of network ATM, that most people kind of adapt to finding an ATM for their bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and you know avoid these third party ones as much as you can because they charge extra. Hooey, hooey. Well, any other thoughts on that story, Alan? Uh, well, the chat room asks, how come they didn't notice strange people messing with the ATM? First of all, we've seen how fast they can be. Second of all, these ones are outside in an alley in a little cubicle, so it's not like it's inside a store. Uh, so it's or a busy corner store, and they have the ATM off in the corner. That's super common. Exactly. You know, there's only one person working at the store, and you just have a, an accomplice distract them by asking them for mm -hmm. cigarettes or something that are up in the shelf above and behind, so they're looking the wrong way. I think another soft target would be uh, in. I don't know about I don't know how it works in Colorado, but in Washington, where we have recreational cannabis, uh, they are not recognized at a federal level, and so because of that, you know, legally. The banks refuse to work with all of the different pot shops that Washington right. is and, a wash you know, in. So they all have these ATMs Visa there too. Has a, and Visa has a rule saying you can't use a credit so card. So there's for a it. whole all these all these pot shops are buying ATMs too. You know they are because you have to go get cash. So I would imagine that's got to be a soft spot too. So between the, the the gas stations that I see them everywhere and the pot shops, they got to have them everywhere. Plus your random bars. That's it's not even about the ATMs at the banks. It's not about that at all. It's about these things and these and these that probably don't get updated ever. Um, wow, that's pretty nuts. All right. Well, you know what else blows my mind? Ting. I don't even know how they do it. TechSnap.Ting.com. It really is mobile that makes sense. I think how they do it is they they landed on something that probably would be the default today if the industry all of a sudden got rebooted. They really are on a mission really to make... It needs to be rebooted. It does. That model. <laughs> Hopefully, Ting keeps putting pressure on the industry, and we sort of vote with our own wallets when we choose services like this. You only pay for what you use. It's $6 for the line, and then just your usage on top of that, and Uncle Sam's cut. Ting is a, a different kind of wireless company. Backed by two cows... They are seriously, seriously passionate about customer service. That's why they structure a no-gimmicky kind of plan. That's why they set up the pay-for-what-you-use. That's why they built a great dashboard and really nice app for your mobile phone. And it's also why they've invested in their customer service. Now, a while back, Ting enabled GSM. So they have CDMA and GSM networks. And as you can imagine, a whole bunch of new people came in to Ting. Mm -hmm. And Ting had to face a pretty big question. They're super, super, super passionate about their customer service, but when they have a whole influx of new customers, there was sort of a, a new dynamic being created and pressure to outsource their customer support, which we've all dealt with outsourced customer support. And I think how they handled that situation is a good sort of underscoring of what I love about Ting. Go, Alan! Now we dance! That's an easy one. Um, uh, long ago, we made the decision uh, or came to the realization that we can deliver customer service better than any other organization in the world, and I think we've got a, a strong track record of that. Uh, once you know, once we started delivery with the, you know in the early days of Tang, we grew. Uh, we realized we needed a new office, which meant we just had to pick a town. Um, if you look at the uh, the other um, uh, operations around St. Catharines, there's a lot of uh, outsources around here, um, uh, and they're providing customer service for companies like. Apple uh, and Best Buy and other large, uh, not only large retail brands, but large brands. Um, uh, that means that some of the best customer service people in the world are actually not too far from here. Uh, and all we had to do was really come in, uh, put together a proposition that made sense, that was attractive for them, you know, good pay, uh, a good workplace, good training, and, um, uh, and, and a good mission. You know, it really helps that we're, we're, we're delivering Ting, which is something that gets people excited uh, and is easy to support. You know, it's a pleasure to work with our customers and you know you can see that in our day-to-day -day operations. 
TrackSnap.ting.com. Go check them out. Uh, I've been using them for well over two years now. And uh, you can try out their savings calculator and just plug in how much you use currently, what your actual usage is, not what, what they get you to pay for, and uh, see if Ting works for you. And then while you're over there, also check out their uh, site for some great deals. They have a couple of nice feature phones for, like, almost nothing. They've got SIM cards at 9 bucks and a bunch of great phones, all unlocked. You own them free. You, or you own them outright. Um, and some of them, if you can uh, bring them over, you have one that works, then you basically are set. You've got a free phone. You bring it over with you. And then you hook up with the Ting's service, and if you use techsnap.ting.com, they'll give you $25 in service credit, which will easily pay for you. Well, it easily paid for my first month. It likely would pay for yours, too. Techsnap.ting.com. Thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Now, Mr. Jude, we're not live this week, but if we were live, it'd be over at jblive.tv, and we'd love mm-hmm. to have you guys join us. If you go there on a Thursday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2800 UTC. <laughs> Boom. Uh, you can catch yourself a little bit of the TechSnap Live experience. Also, if you're a patron over at patreon.com slash today, you can catch yourself the recorded edition, which this week would be a huge file because we're recording two episodes back to back. That's why we're not live this particular week. But we will be live next week, and we'd love to have you join us over at jblive.tv or, like I said, catch the recorded version for our patrons. Okay. Yes. Also, the- check out uh, BSD Now that... Oh, yes. It'll be out yesterday. In, you know what it is? If you're you watching know? this here. You yes, know? Uh, we have an interview with uh, Benno Rice, uh, who is the first candidate running for the FreeBSD core team. And we're going to try to interview <clears> as many <throat> of the other ones as we can before the election ends uh, in a couple of weeks. So that'll be episode 145 uh, yep. of the BSD Now program. You guys go check that out. Yep. Cool. It'll probably be right up on the JB site as, uh, mm-hmm. as you're watching this episode. Okay. For sure. Now, with the news all done, it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your feedback to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or asking those questions over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choosing TechSnap from the dropdown. Our first email comes in from Adam. He wants to know about PFSense in a free NAS deal. He says, hi, gang. I am really on a tight budget here, and that's why I wouldn't even think about going through all the troubles of combining PFSense and free NAS, but... I need to consider the option. Here is my story. I was going to install PFSense into a FreeNAS jail, but beforehand, I did a little Googling and found some forum posts which basically said the problem is that data packets in the jail have to go through FreeNAS, so you aren't providing a good security model for your server. I'm not proficient in networking, but I think this would not be a problem. Also, some say that if PFSense gets compromised, they can also access my FreeNAS. Doesn't a jail provide some security so this couldn't happen? Additionally, if a dedicated PFSense box gets breached, do they, can they still compromise my FreeNAS or get to my data? What do you think? Is PFSense in FreeNAS in a jail really a security disaster? Thanks, Adam. So in particular, uh, it's not a disaster, but it wouldn't work very well. So PFSense is designed as an appliance, and so it doesn't really work in a FreeNAS jail mm. very well. However, if you have FreeNAS 9.2, 10, it now supports Beehive for virtualization. There you go. So you could make a VM and run PFSense in that. Yeah, it seems like a VM would be a way better way to go, right? Uh, yeah, well, mostly just because uh, jails, the networking inside the jail is restricted so that the somebody inside the jail, you know, for example, can't even write raw packets so that they can't spoof mm. their IP address and so on. And that really doesn't make sense for a PFSense. So what so, about... Uh, 
I don't know anything about Beehive. What about dedicating specific network cards? Is that totally doable? Uh, yep, you can do that. You can uh, do hardware pass-through. So you can yeah. actually have NICs on the free NAS that aren't, don't, are invisible to the free NAS and it'll go directly into uh, the PFSense. Mm. Or you can just do the regular bridging stuff. Um, That's cool. In general, uh, your free NAS and, and your PFSense are separate enough that compromising one doesn't necessarily mean compromising the other. As long as you don't do something silly like leave an SSH key that allows you to log in as root mm. on the free NAS on the PFSense or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, you know, use the same root password. Yeah. Uh, so it probably won't work very well as a jail, but if you use FreeNAS 9.10 or newer, that's based on FreeBSD 10, it has Beehive, and you could run your PFSense in a Beehive huh. and either do hardware pass through for the network cards or just do the bridging. Um, it's a little more complicated on FreeNAS than regular FreeBSD because it's stripped down. But they do have uh, 9.10 does have support for running uh, a VM management thing on FreeNAS, and so that's what I would recommend. So, uh, Beehive question for you: Does mm-hmm. PCI pass through extend to the display adapter? So, could you pass through? So you can pass through the device. I just don't know if it gets initialized. Uh, there's certain magic for displays that's probably a little more difficult. So, okay. Uh, one watch. of the news stories we talked about on uh, last week's BSD Now was. Um, Beehive on FreeBSD 11 just got support for a VNC backend. Hmm. So you can have full graphics for Windows servers now. So that you can actually go through the Windows installer instead of having to do the unattended route. Right. Because before this, uh, Beehive only had a serial console uh, for all the VMs, which works fine for FreeBSD and Linux and so on. But Windows means you didn't work for Windows. Yeah. Uh, uh, But now it has the full graphics stack, although, again, so I've heard of people using the PCI password with a graphics card. In order to do the um, virtual desktop acceleration stuff yeah. that uh, Microsoft supports, yeah, but I don't know about actually using the video card for gaming or anything like that. Interesting. Uh, if somebody has enough expertise to actually work on that and try it, I'd love to know if it works. Hmm. Okay, so Mark writes about direct access. Hi, everyone. Mm-hmm. I think that two shows ago you misunderstood a listener's question. I was also wondering the same thing. Which one of the remote access possibilities is the most secure? That is to access my home resources over the internet. A VPN from my own provider, a reverse proxy from my my own or from a provider, or poke a hole in my home router firewall and enable direct access. For instance, SFTP, own cloud over HTTPS, a web dev, or anything else. What security to consider in any of these options? And which one of those do you think would be the most easy for me and my spouse, all using all sorts of devices? Thanks. Take care. Mark. Uh, so security wise, they're all about the same, um, for ease of use, um, there, basically there's a couple of options. So, uh, the main thing was last time the, the guy that had the problem didn't want to just poke holes in the firewall or particularly didn't, couldn't do port forwarding for one reason or another. And so the suggested solution there was have your one machine, like the router at your house, a PF sensor, or even just the machine that your is your BSD server or whatever, VPN out to a digital ocean droplet. And then on that droplet, you run a reverse proxy, so like Nginx or something, that will listen, uh, determine that you're connecting to own cloud or the web dev or whatever, and then proxy that over the VPN using like internal IP addresses to your machine at your house. Uh, the main thing is that the digital ocean provides a static IP address uh, and a stable endpoint. And then your house dialing out with a VPN means that if your home internet goes out and comes back up with a different IP address, it'll connect out still to the static IP of the droplet with the VPN. Hmm. Then you would you know, use the reverse proxy to access the stuff. Uh, so that mostly works. 
Um, if you did a direct VPN, either connecting directly to your house or with the DigitalOcean mediator or whatever, the downside is from your random devices, you all have to connect to the VPN. Mm-hmm. So, But then again, if you're doing on, a whole bunch of different services, it might just be easier to do one VPN connection. Right. Well, so you'd probably only have one VPN connection, but do you want to have to sign into the VPN on your phone every time you want to mm. access something? No, I wouldn't. Uh, it has the advantage that it means nobody else can access it. Mm-hmm. It has, but it can have disadvantages. So if you do the reverse proxy, say Nginx, on the DigitalOcean droplet, and you get Let's Encrypt certificate to provide HTTPS, then you can do regular username and password authentication, but over encryption so it's secure, and make it so you have to log in with a username and password mm-hmm. to access the reverse proxy, which then takes you to the own cloud page where you still have to log in there as well. Yeah. Um, but that provides you that bit of extra authentication so that not just anybody, you know, if you just have the reverse proxy on the digital ocean that's connecting to your house, it's the same as putting your house directly on the internet. Mm-hmm. And so if there's a flaw in own cloud, they can exploit it either way. Yeah. The advantage to putting HTTPS uh, basic authentication on the reverse proxy means that they have to have a username and password to connect to the Nginx before we will actually connect them to your house. And this protects the own cloud in case you know it has a known vulnerability or whatever. I wouldn't do a VPN but it, myself, but one more thing yeah. for the VPN. One last thing that's nice about the VPN is he said, uh, which would be easy for me and my spouse. And if you want to add anybody else to that, the one nice thing about a VPN is you can turn their access on and off by disabling their yes. VPN access. That's nice, yeah. too. Uh, and the, yeah. The also, the other advantage to VPN versus a re- just the plain reverse proxy is the VPN does every protocol where the reverse proxy is basically HTTP only. Mm. So that'll cover, the reverse proxy will do own cloud and web dev, but it doesn't really do SFTP. Although for that, you can do H, uh, SSH chaining. Uh, we have a tutorial on that on BSD now, okay. where basically you would SFTP or SSH to the DigitalOcean box and the script there would automatically chain you back to your house over the VPN, and it would just work. So th- you can do SSH and SFTP that way. But if you pick some random third protocol or something special that's not just plain HTTP, then the reverse proxy kind of breaks down and doesn't yeah. work with every app. Yeah. Uh, I'm ready for Anthony's question if you are, because it's one of my sure. favorite subjects. He writes in, he says, I got to know about RAM disk. From what I understand is there's... A bunch of different types of RAM disks on FreeBSD. What type of RAM disk does Alan recommend if I would need to prioritize I/O requests over backing the non-sensitive data, uh, continuously backing the data in case of power failure? Number two would be continuously backing the data in case of power failure. Thanks for the insights. Uh, well, so it's not really a RAM disk if it has backing. So, um, you know, RAM doesn't stay on if the power goes out. So. Basically, you can't get the speed of a RAM disk if you're actually having the data be safe, right? It's, it's like you can have it fast or you can have it safe. You can't have both. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So in FreeBSD, there's a couple. There's TempFS. The main advantage to it is that it grows and shrinks. So uh, unlike a regular RAM disk where you create a, uh, you set aside X amount of RAM and then format it with a file system and do stuff with it, with TempFS, it starts out using no RAM and it's an empty file system, and you add a file to it, and it takes up that much RAM. You add another file, it takes up more RAM. You delete a file, and you can free the RAM up. Yeah. Uh, so TempFS is great, especially for stuff that's really temporary. Um, so you know, uh, the package building system on FreeBSD uses it to just store all the, the work directories and stuff that's going to be thrown away in five minutes uh, because you don't want to waste disk I.O. writing that to disk when you know you're going to delete it, and it's never going to survive more than 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but it doesn't have the downside of requiring you to allocate or like we're going to have to set aside five gigs of RAM in case we need it because you can just say, all right, this can have up to five gigs of RAM, but if I don't use it, I don't need it all. Uh, so with MD or an MD config, you can create memory disks that are actually backed by a file and all the writes will, you know, the, the data will get written to the file as you do it um, and it won't... Uh, It'll be safe. The downside is it won't be fast. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> uh, it's not, if, if you're just worried about read speed uh, and you want it to be safe, you, there's uh, Gcache, uh, which is a geom layer that allows you to use a second device, a faster device or whatever, as a read cache of something. And you could use a RAM disk as the read cache for a regular disk to speed it up or something. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, basically, you can't uh, have something be fast and safe at the same time. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? We need, a, we need a Venn diagram right there. Yeah, well, this, this is why ZFS has its intent log or the uh, mm. separate intent log hmm. is that is really about the part, the specific types of writes where you want where you want the guaranteed safety. We're going to write those to an SSD uh, in order to try to make them as fast as we can. But all the writes where you do not, you don't actually, you're not worried about losing the last five seconds of that data or whatever, mm-hmm. the asynchronous stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. like halfway through copying a file. You don't care if you copied 20% of it, 30% of it when you have to start over. Um, in that case, it just flushes it every five seconds and tries to get as much speed as it can uh, while risking some of the data. I, that, that's, that answer was much more fascinating than I expected. Jared mm-hmm. writes in. Uh, he says, hey, Alan and Chris. It's pronounced Seth, right? Seth? Yep. Uh, he says, I was wondering about the state of Ceph on FreeBSD and FreeNAS, or if you know of any distributed file systems that utilize ZFS natively. Thanks, Jared. Um, on the last quarterly status report for FreeBSD, somebody wrote in an article where they're actually working on getting Ceph and ZFS doing stuff together. I don't know exactly how far they are in that. In the past, I've also looked at GlusterFS uh, and using that on top of ZFS, and uh, I think it got most of the way to hmm. having it working, uh, but ran out of time to play with it and lost my interest a bit. Um, the other interesting one that uh, GlusterFS has is just um, kind of a middleware thing where it's doing NFS. So it makes a single NFS thing that you can mount, but the backing for it is actually a bunch of separate NFS things. So you're, it doesn't do any extra redundancy, but it allows you to make a single NFS namespace that's combining, say, your five NFS servers. Oh. Uh, and I thought that would be really cool on ZFS. Yeah. Huh. Thanks, Jared, um, for the question. But yeah, um, if you check the FreeBSD stati- uh, quarterly status report for January through March, there's an article in there about Ceph and ZFS on FreeBSD. And there's an email address for someone to contact and a list of what he's done so far and what else still needs to be done. So hopefully that has the answer to your question in it. Cool. Um, So if you didn't hear your email answer, don't worry. It doesn't mean we don't have it. It just means we got a lot and we still want more. I know. Crazy TechSnap wants to read your crazy emails. We love answering your questions. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the drop down. And don't worry. We'll be reading even more emails next week. We love them. And keep sending them in so that way we stay on top. We have a good fresh inbox pile to dig through every single week. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are links that we just didn't get to at the top of the show, but we still want to talk about them a bit and give you some links to read up on your own after the show, so that way you just get more snap in your face. And some of these links came from our intelligence network over at... 
techsnap.reddit.com. Our first story makes you wonder. Makes you wonder if you really want to bother with this stuff anymore. Armed FBI agents, dun dun dun, write a home of a researcher who found unsecured patient data. Now, uh, FBI agents, one armed with an assault weapon, reportedly raided the home of a security professional who discovered sensitive data for 22,000 dental patients that was available on the internet. Now, this is according to a, a report recently published. Justin Schaefer, who was described as a dental computer technician and security researcher, reportedly said that he that the raid happened on Tuesday at 6.30 a.m. as he and his wife and three young children were asleep. The FBI agents told Schaefer that the raid stemmed from an incident in February. Could you imagine that? You'd completely forgotten about it almost. When Schaefer discovered a file transfer protocol server operated by EagleSoft, a provider of dental practice management software. The FTP server reportedly stored patient data in a way that made it easily accessible to anyone. Schaefer contacted databreaches.net and asked for help privately notifying the software maker. And once the patient data was secured... The breach notification site published this disclosure, which is linked. In a blog post of his own, Schaefer later discussed the FTP lapse and uh, the separate EagleSoft vulnerability involving hard-coded database credentials. FBI agents reportedly told Schaefer that Patterson Dental, a parent company of EagleSoft, the ones that made the software, were claiming that Schaefer had exceeded authorized access when viewing the publicly available data, and because it was patient data, it involves HIPAA. And because he may have used the credentials, he may technically be in violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The credentials that they built into their software that were easy for anybody to find, it means anybody could have... Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is the... Basically, whistleblower protection laws need to cover this particular case. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he worked with a company to do the disclosure, and he handled yeah. that responsibly. Um, now, some would argue that you always need to obtain permission up front. I would say... Maybe so in this case because right, but in general, this was he was working for his client yeah, and noticed yeah. that um, they're shipping all of our patient data over FTP with credentials that are hard coded, so it's the same for every dental practice. Mm. And oh, look, there's everybody's data, and yeah. they told them about it. They fixed the problem because they know it's a problem, and then they try to go after him. And then a parent company comes in all pissed off, yeah, which is no good. Speaking of no good, Core Windows Utility that could be used to bypass AppLocker? Yes. Well, what, what? So Core Windows Utility, uh, RegSVR32. Oh, yeah, my favorite registry editor. DLLs, right? Well, it's not the registry editor. It's <laughs> the one that used to register DLLs. <laughs> right. Yes, that's correct. Uh, so, you know, it used to be uh, relatively common to run a bunch of things with that. Like, yeah. I think there was one that would, like, change how the control panel worked, or there was one mm. that add extra options to your desktop. There were a lot of yeah. secret hacks that involved the stool. Well, it turns out that you can use it uh, to do uh, remote code execution from the internet, which will completely bypass uh, AppLocker, which is Windows application whitelisting. So even if you go so far as to whitelist so that only listed certain applications are allowed to run, you can use RegServe to own a machine. RegServer32 is proxy and SSL aware, meaning there's no extra configuration needed. You can execute code from any remote destination. Hey, everybody! Why, why can that do anything outside <laughs> of the local disk? Oh, so probably for network administration, maybe, I guess. Uh, I mean, that must That's be it. That's supposed to be. I think that must be it. That's yeah, a good like one. Though. A lot of whitelisting protections block JavaScript and uh, VBScript, but there's no restrictions here. <laughs> the fact that the code is hosted on a remote system makes it trivial, and Reg32 can do whatever it wants. 
Whoo! Well, uh, sort of along the same lines of uh, crazy zany things over at Microsoft, uh, Internet Explorer usage appears to be in a free fall. Uh, it's taken a nosedive. It dropped 20% year on year. Edge, however, well, it's managed to claim 4.99% of share, which puts it with Microsoft altogether at a total of about 38% of browser share which is down 21.44% from the same time last year. Holy crap. Uh, it's a significant trend. Microsoft had a 55% share of the browser market last year, and now they have a 38%. Use of part of that is more people doing more browsing on their phones sure, sure. where Internet Explorer isn't an option. Sure. Yeah, also Chrome. Chrome has jumped 40 to 45.63%. Yes, because, because the Chrome built into Android is counted in that total. Uh-huh. The leap of 19.26% for Chrome. Chrome yeah. is not the only browser, though, with uh, some growth. Surprisingly, Opera That's is up 0.5%. Like the Wii and some phones and some The new like- Opera also based on Chromium. Oh. So it's really another win for Chrome, really. Yay for Chrome. Uh, tell me about this one from Krebs on Security. The guy the government says swatted uh, Krebs? Yes. Uh, so this is, I think Krebs got swatted back in 2012. Uh, and uh, the police eventually scooped up the guy and uh, charged him with a bunch of things, but he got off fairly easy from those. Uh, but the Department of Justice went after him under the new anti-swatting laws, and uh seemed like his sentencing will be in a couple days, I think. Huh. And uh, they contacted Krebs uh, to let him know because he has the option of going to the trial and, you know, Talking to the court and explaining why he thinks this guy should go to jail for longer. Hmm. Interesting. I might read that after the show. Hmm. Uh, this one is not really a surprise, but I hadn't seen actual reporting on the fact that it's happening. And now we have this. Police are beginning to file warrants for Android's vast store of location information. Uh, Google, as lawfully expected, complies with warrants for location data. While the warrants for location data have been rare, police appear to be catching on to the powerful new tactic, which allows them to collect a wealth of information on the movements and activities of Android users. Uh, as a, and there, as long as there is probable cause to do the search, they can get access to this information, including for some of us like myself who are currently using Fit Active Tracking, like really super, super, super accurate location data. Yep. Uh, uh, yikes. So yeah, if you're going to commit a crime, you might want to turn that off on your phone so that uh, I, I foresee Google or yeah, Google offering an option to erase data after a certain amount of time or something. Although Google really wants this data, so um, maybe they will find a way to stop giving it. Yeah, the data being collected by Google's location history system, which has been present in various services for years. Oh, yeah, uh, I remember it used to tell you. Uh, it used to be, you know, kind of funny and tell you like how many times back and forth to the moon you've traveled and things like that. Yeah, basically, any time a phone what was it called ba- uh, Google Latitude. Yes, it used Latitude. To be called back yep. before Maps was a thing. Every time the phone establishes a strong enough location point, so whatever parameters it does that, the system makes an entry in the user's timeline history, establishing that user was in that place at that time. Um, including well, Google Photo users also have location data in there that they can get access to. Yep. Oh boy. By default, it will store all the location of where you took the photo. They say they can visualize your world routes and your, or your, I'm sorry, they can visualize your real world routines is what they say mm-hmm. using this system. Yeah. You can see you driving back and forth to work. And yeah. For it. me, I have, I have super accurate tracking on for my fit tracking. So when I go on walks and stuff, it like shows me down to like when I cut through like a little bit of a trail, like it'll show like the little, I mean, it's super, super accurate how much it's tracking. Yep. Um, 
Well, wow. it's the same way Google, you know, uh, they're talking about Google Maps being smart enough. It's like, oh, you're almost home. So I'm going to stop giving you directions because you know this neighborhood. I know it's it's it makes you it does make you think about the fundamental approaches because, for example, and the, the problem is it's not a very good system. But Apple Maps about every I think it's every every other I can't remember how often, but every few moments it re-randomizes your connection ID to the map servers so they can't track who it is that's requesting for the location information. And so Whereas, it's well, in, in that case, it's because Google's not necessarily trying to sell ads with their net mapping stuff. Whereas Google wants to know your routine so they can be like, oh, you should stop at this place on the way home yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, there's, there's, great, there's great value in knowing what you like and what your routines are and where you drive through and what stores are near you when you drive past them. Yep. Yeah. And you know, while they haven't used all of that yet, you know, they want that history so that when they come up with a way to use it, yeah. they'll be able to analyze your history over the last two years in a couple of days. So uh, the other day, I was reading different types of uh, routers that would work with a 4G connection, so that way I could have a, a better wireless router in my RV. And uh, I was reading about different routers, Googled a couple of them, and then a day later, I brought up Google Now on my Nexus 5 here. And in here, there was a box. I'm wondering if it's still here. I'm looking right now. I don't see it. In here was a box that says, would you like to continue researching about routers? Mm -hmm. And then it had links to like ones to buy when I clicked on that. Uh, so yeah, they'd, they'd sussed out that I was maybe potentially considering getting a new router and then put cards in my Google Now feed because I had stopped. I basically, I don't have time for this. And so they're like, would you like to keep going? Would you like to buy this one? <laughs> smooth, Googs. Smooth. All right. Arrests have been made in a $45 million Russian bank hack. Tell me about this. Yes. Uh, so in Russia, they've arrested 50 people in connection with a uh, hack of a bank that uh, got away with uh, 3 billion rubles, although that's only 45 million U.S. dollars. Yeah. Yeah, not as so basically, uh, spear phishing using the Lurk Trojan and getting that on people's computers and taking over. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Look but, at that. Uh, I imagine a lot of those arrests were are the mules and so on, and not necessarily the people behind it. It says too they use compromised VPNs mm -hmm. to hide their traces. So there you go. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Speaking of VPNs, okay. This is a great headline. SC Linux is beyond saving at this point. Yes. Uh, so this is a guy I follow quite closely. He's Chris. He works at a University of Toronto in the IT department, and he's got, uh, as you can see from the links there, a bunch of different stories about SC Linux over the years and what's wrong with it, and so on. But he says, at this point, uh, the problem is that anybody um, who has any sense left SE Linux a long time ago. The only people left are the hardcore people. And at this point, it's SE Linux is doing more harm than good, because every time someone talks about trying to make something better, they're like, well, we already have SE Linux. Right. And I like right? the mantra that is true about the SE Linux community. It says, uh, SE Linux is not a sysadmin usability nightmare. And those that disable it, those are fools. And that is a very typical line you hear from the SC Linux community. Oh, those are people that are still there, yes, because yeah. everybody reasonable has left a long time ago. Yep, yep. And so at this point, it's just actually stopping forward progress from developing something that is more usable. CoreOS has got Taurus, not the car. I think that's how you say it, though. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea behind Taurus is to give developers access to what they say is reliable and scalable storage systems for applications that have been deployed on containers using the Google-incubated Kubernetes, or Kubernetes, container Kubernetes. management service. Yeah. Persistent storage in container cluster infrastructure is one of the most interesting current problems in computing. That's according to Barack, who is uh, working at CoreOS, writing the announcement. Where do we store the voluminous streams of data the microservices produce and consume, especially when immutable and discreetly contained executable code is so powerful, is such a powerful pattern, I mm -hmm. should say. 
So yeah, normally the computer, the containers are mostly read only, uh, and so then you need somewhere to store the data. And when your containers are running in the cloud in a in a non persistent type setup, it's not the same as if you know if you're running your containers on top of FreeBSD and you have ZFS to store all your data. If if you're running off all these tiny instances in the cloud, you need some way to manage your data. But it kind of needs to be centralized so you can share yeah. in between. They say your it's going to be a key value database to store and retrieve files. Mm-hmm. And it'll uh, right now, the early version of Torus exposes files as block-oriented storage through a network block device. Which at this point is it sounds like EC2 to me, but yeah, yeah, uh, or something a little bit more like NMD, but yeah, yeah maybe. Hmm. Uh, okay, OTR protocol patched against remote code execution flaw. Yes. Off the record. Yeah, so this is off the record. It's a protocol used in uh, messaging apps like uh, Pigeon and yeah. ADM and so on yeah. to make sure that your uh, conversation isn't being recorded by the other side. And uh, yeah, there's remote code execution flaws. So well, using this to try to be more secure, you could actually get hacked. Womp womp. Yeah, that kind of stuff happens, though. Yep. Good to know. Good to patch. I thought this was kind of interesting. We were just talking about browser share market. And you were mentioning how uh, Chrome on Android kind of plays into that. This is uh, exactly. Uh, so concerning the specific battle between iOS and Android, this, re- this big report that just came out, it's an, internet, it's an annual internet trends report by Kleiner Perkins and Bayers. They partner up uh, with Mary Meeker. They've done this before. And the Meeker notes <laughs> show that the past six years of iOS have just seen a two percentage point increase in market share. Well, Android has exploded from 4% presence in the industry in 2009 to a massive 81% in 2015. The pattern is expected to continue. Meeker projects iOS will see a year-over-year loss of 11% in unit shipments as Android climbs another 7% in 2016, which is kind of interesting. A little bit other note here. Global smartphone user growth is seeing a similar slowdown, however. Understandably, they say the largest markets with the least amount of smartphone proliferation have the biggest upticks in year-over-year increments. Right. Uh, most people that want a cell phone have a cell phone at this point. Uh, and then your growth markets are going to be places where people don't already have a cell phone or you know, where people still have dumb phones. But uh, I think part of it is actually, I think in Canada, TELUS just announced they're going to kill off their CDMA network uh, by the end Whoa, of 2017. Really? Yes. Mm. Uh, now, the phones are, some of the newer phones use things like HSPA and so on. That, so they're, Still technically CDMA, but they mean the legacy CDMA. I love a little Slack story because it's I think all... uh, AT&T was doing the same thing, right? So I saw memes of people getting a text message saying, uh, AT&T loves your business, but we're turning your phone off. Oh, really? You know, I know that has happened in the past, yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, so let's talk about Slack because everybody loves talking about Slack. Got to talk about Slack. Got to use Slack. Got to go go Slack. Got to get plugins. Got to get bots. Well, turns out there is a, a flaw in the token security system in Slack, which meant that your private code and private chat transcripts could be accessed by anyone on the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. So they, they're fixing that. That's good. That's good. Uh, I guess I don't have to tell you to patch, though, because you can't run your instance of Slack. So. Yeah. That's not a problem. What about this new MIT scanner that finds web app flaws in under a minute? How about that one? That's yes. cool. So this is a new tool out of MIT and Berkeley called Space, and it's a static analyzer for web applications. So it looks at uh, the way memory is used and a bunch of other things in the applications. Uh, and uh, by basically looking at the code, I think they ran it a bunch of uh, Ruby on Rails code hmm. and a couple other languages. And uh, within about 64 seconds on is the average run, they found a bunch of flaws in uh, the most popular code on GitHub. Well, that's pretty nice. Good for them. Mm-hmm. Good for them. So, Alan, I hope you have a great trip. I hope you have mm-hmm. a great BSD can. Um, yes. Is this any of this going to be live by chance this year? 
Um, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I'm sure you'll tell us about it when you get back, and maybe we'll be able to find some of the stuff you did there. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that does bring us to the end of this week's broadcast of the TechSnap program. TechSnap.reddit.com is where we'd like you to go to submit stories or news items or roundup items. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact is where we'd like to get your questions. And JBLive.tv is where you watch us, and you can find our live times over at JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact. All right. Anything else you want to cover, Alan, before we wrap it up for the day? Nope, I'm good. Okay, everybody. Thanks for watching, everybody. Yes, thank you very much, and we'll see you right back here next week.